Parshat Shemini, 5783. We'll talk about this morning food, and a little more specifically, halakha, in a broad sense, food, the food laws, how, what's a healthy way to wrap your mind around that and participate in that. And so this is a great, great Torah portion because there is actually a lot packed in here. I'm not going to unpack it all, but let's start there this morning. Leviticus chapter 9 is the, uh, where this morning's reading begins. Since the book of Exodus, the end of the book of Exodus, really largely what's been happening is the priests are getting ready to begin their ministry, right? They're making all the... Um, they're making the tabernacle, all the plates and all the priestly garments and everything that goes into that. A lot of preparation, chapter after chapter, for the priests to be getting ready to do their service. And in chapter 9 it begins, and um, this is essentially day one on the job. Everything's ready to go. They've been sanctified, and it's time to actually begin temple service. Um, the culmination of all these efforts really kind of takes off in the 23rd verse. This is at the very end of chapter 9. Uh, Leviticus chapter 9, 23 says, Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting when they came back out and blessed the people. The glory of Adonai appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the presence of Adonai and devoured the burnt offerings and fat on the altar. When all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. This is supposed to be like the, uh, one of the happiest days in the lives of the children of Israel. And now what is on what is supposed to be a most joyous day, tragedy strikes Aaron's sons, of course, Nadav and Avihu, who find themselves offering strange fire before the Lord, something that causes them to perish. Um, they just... They got out of protocol, right? There's certain things that need to happen in a certain order, and there's a lot of much conjecture on exactly what the particular sin was, but the word says they brought strange fire, and it caused them their life. This teaches the people that Adonai is very dangerous. You have to be careful to operate within the parameters set forth in the Torah so they won't die. So they're now... A aware of his danger, and there is a little disagreement that comes up that is fairly important when we talk about halakha. Halakha is just how you, is, means walk, essentially, in Hebrew, and it's how you do what you do. Uh, it, it's tradition, essentially. It's how you live out the commandments in Torah. You'll see after this uh, after this here, let's read this. This is Baikra chapter 10, verse 16. We're going to read about a disagreement going on here. Uh, Leviticus 10, 16 says, Then Moses searched carefully for the goat of the sin offering and noticed it had been burned up. So he snapped at Eleazar and Itamar, the surviving sons of Aaron, saying, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in the place, in the place of the sanctuary, since it is most holy? And he gave it to you in order to bear the iniquity of the congregation and to make atonement for them before Adonai. They were supposed to eat it. They didn't. Moshe is very angry at this point. 
Look, its blood was not brought into the inner part of the sanctuary. You certainly shall have eaten it in the sanctuary as I commanded. But, Aaron said to Moses, behold, today they presented their sin offering and their burnt offerings before Adonai. So Aaron doesn't see things the same way. He continues, when things uh, like these have happened to me, would it have been good in the eyes of Adonai if I'd eaten the sin offering today? When Moses heard this, it was good in his eyes. So at first, Moses is very angry. They were supposed to keep the sin offering. They were supposed to eat it, but there's a disagreement going on here. Whenever there's a lot of laws given by the Lord, there's always what ifs. What about this? There's always different scenarios that you could ask. Moshe here is highly irritated that protocol isn't followed, and Aaron's like, well, what about this? Now, in the midst of this big disagreement, this probably would have been a great time to test out the Urim and Thummim, you know, figure out who's right, who's wrong. They didn't do that. They could have went before the tent of meeting and asked the Lord who was right and who was wrong. They didn't do that. Adonai didn't step in and declare one uh, victorious in this disagreement. Adonai just sat back and let Moshe and Aharon sort of hash this thing out. The finer details that kind of sit in between the laws that Adonai gives, that's what halakha is. That's starting a tradition, starting a halakha. There's a little bit of gray area here. How do we work this out? If the Lord's not going to tell us specifically, then we have to figure it out, hash it out, and develop something. And that's what's happening right here at the end of chapter 10. We'll circle back to Halakha in a little bit. That's the, just above that a little. The Israelites realized that there's a lot of danger here. And if Adonai didn't have their attention before the deaths of Aharon's kids, they have it now. So Adonai gives them some rules to live by. Back up to verse 8. So this is chapter 10, verse 8. Adonai spoke to Aharon saying, Do not drink wine or ferment a drink, neither you nor your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting so that you do not die. This is to be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to make a distinction between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean, and you are to teach B'nai Israel all the statutes which Adonai has spoken to them through Moses. So there are a couple things there. They need to identify between the holy and the common and the clean and the unclean. Holy and the common is very important, of course. Being common isn't bad. Common things are consecrated and then become holy. So some holy things can transmit holiness. Other holy things are very dangerous if they're not treated correctly. Again, it's serious business. But we're going to focus a little bit on clean and unclean because that parlays into the uh, discussion about the food laws. Clean and unclean, really, I think most people realize, has nothing to do with hygiene or cleanliness as we think about it. It's better to be thought of as ceremonially fit or ceremonially unfit. Being unclean is something we all are. Everyone that is listening to my voice, whether you're here in this room or you're listening online, wherever you are at, may you be blessed. 
all of us are unclean, and there's really not much we can do about it. At one point or another in our lives, we've walked through a graveyard, we've touched a dead animal. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. And the only way we could ever make ourselves clean was if there was a temple and we could go through a purification process there. And that's not happened yet. And that's okay. There's no real reason or need to be tahor, to be clean, unless there's a temple to actually go to. That's the whole point of the whole clean and unclean thing. So it seems whether you're clean or unclean really isn't that relevant. And so a lot of these laws about being clean or unclean just seem kind of um, not that important or because they're not relevant to today's world. Well, not so fast, because the food laws seem to be an exception to the rule. Um, Vayikr chapter 11, verse 1, begins like this. I'll read the first few verses here. We're going to get into the food laws a little bit, and then we'll talk about them a little. Adonai spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying to them, Speak to B'nai Yisrael, the children of Israel, saying, These are... The living things which you, sh you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth, whatever has a split divided hoof, and choose cud among the animals that you may eat. Nevertheless, you shall not eat of those that only chew cud or, or have a split hoof. The camel, though it chooses cud, does not have a divided hoof. It's unclean to you. The coney, though it chews the cud, yet does not have a divided hoof, is unclean to you. The hare, though it chews the cud, does not have a split hoof, so it's unclean to you. The pig, though it has a split divided hoof, does not chew its cud, so it is unclean to you. You are not to eat meat from them, nor are you to touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. This isn't, while it seems like a lot of the other laws are dependent upon the tabernacle and only relevant for the tabernacle, the food laws seem to be the exception in that they're not bound to the tabernacle or to the sanctuary. It's much more about holiness in one's life. When we read towards the end of this chapter, this chapter finishes off uh, with verse, we'll start in verse 44. The end of the chapter is summarized like this. It says, for I am Adonai your God, therefore sanctify yourselves and be holy for I am holy. You are not to defile yourselves with any kind of creeping thing that moves on the earth. For I am Adonai who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, you shall be holy for I am holy. This is the Torah, the law of the animal, the bird, and every living creature that moves in the waters and every creature that creeps on the earth to make a distinction between the clean and the unclean and between the living thing that may be eaten and the living thing that may not be eaten. There's no procedure here about the temple or the tabernacle. This is just about being able to live life and be able to discern between the clean and the unclean. Now it seems that there's plenty of arguments against this. I think we all kind of have a sense, you know, we all eat here at Tree of Life uh, some sort of a kosher way. There's a lot of variants. Um, some from very little to some have a very high level of uh, tradition that they follow. Many of us, of course, 
did probably did not grow up this way. If you just Google what does the Bible say about foods we should eat or kosher, you'll, a list of uh, responses will pop up. Um, I printed one out here. It's from gotquestions.org. If you Google anything really related to the Bible and a whole list of things come up, Got Questions will always be one of them. Got Questions is probably the largest database. They handle the most questions about the Bible on the internet. They get like a million, two million hits a week. And so gotquestions.org is always going to have something, an answer for just about any question you got. A bunch of Reformed guys run it. Some Calvinists got things in there. I'm not anti-Reform or anti-Calvinist. There's some good, God-loving people there. And um, they put a lot of work into this. Uh, site, and um, so I was just curious, wonder what they have to say about this, so I Googled it last night, popped it out. They do a lot better job defending other things than they do about the food laws, and it's what you'd think of, right? You'd mark chapter 9 or mark chapter 7, write the sheet, that Peter sees the sheet and the vision, I mean, we've all kind of been down that road and been through that. Essentially, if you just keep reading another chapter so you kind of get the whole picture. It's not necessarily at all about food. I found this one line in here a little entertaining. It says, uh, the dietary rules were never intended to apply to anyone other than the Israelites. I thought that's odd because in Acts chapter 15, there are actually laws that are imposed on non-Israelite people. I wasn't going to read it, but we've got a lot of time. So I just want to read the, what was imposed. Now, in Acts 15, there's a lot of people that have no dietary restrictions at all put on them. They're free to eat whatever they want. Well, once they start worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they're in shul, and they're worshiping with these guys, suddenly they have dietary restrictions restrictions placed upon them. Sounds a little bit odd, but that's just how it is. Most of the time, this chapter is read from the other direction. People saying, I'm free from that. Well, they're not. They're to abstain from, this is 15 verse 20, they're to abstain from contamination of idols, sexual immorality, that which is strangled, and from blood. So, they're getting restrictions placed upon them. I think it, you don't have to have a psychology degree to understand group dynamics. And if you start worshiping with people and they start giving you a list of, start, begin to give you a list of kind of what you should and shouldn't eat, that you're going to take that and get curious and follow that a little deeper. That essentially is all they had about uh, why you shouldn't eat kosher is it wasn't given to the Israelites in Mark chapter 7. I thought, man, there's got to be better material than that. But there, I don't know, there really isn't. Not that it's, listen, we're not trying to send anyone, we're not condemning anybody for not following all the food laws the best they can. No one's going to hell because they're eating hot, buttery, tender crab legs, right? It's not what we're talking about here. The bigger picture is this. Let me, uh, I heard a story once that 
really gave me some perspective. It was a story about uh, a Jewish man, he was middle-aged, and he had walked away from his faith for many, many, many years. He's secular, living in the world. He gets a notion that, well, maybe he'll get back into the faith. So he wanders on down to the local synagogue, knocks on the door, and the rabbi answers, and they start having a little bit of talk. And he tells the rabbi, he says, listen, I'm thinking about getting back into my faith, but I'm just dipping my toe in. I'll do one law. Give me one mitzvah. I'm only going to do one. The rabbi thought about it, and he thought about observing Shabbat or keeping kosher. And the guy tells him, I'm thinking about either Shabbat or kosher. Now, Shabbat, what does it say about Shabbat? It says, above, above all else, you shall keep my Shabbat. That's what the word says. Violating Shabbat, you get a death penalty for that. Very serious mitzvah. On the other hand, the food laws, there's no death penalty for the food laws. Some of them, all you have to do is go through a mikvah, wash your clothes, and you're clean again. So some of the penalties for the food laws are fairly lenient. So you have Shabbat, it's extremely important, and you have the food laws, a lot of lenient stuff there. The rabbi tells them, if you're only going to do one mitzvah, I want you to obey the kashrut laws, the food laws, which kind of shocked the man. Says, really? Shabbat's supposed to be the most important mitzvah of all. And the rabbi tells him, well, Shabbat's only one time a week. If you observe the kashrut, the laws for food, you're observing them three times a day. I would rather you connect with Adonai three times a day than once a week. And I thought that's kind of a novel idea. It's not so much about the negative and about what you're violating, and it's not about what law you're breaking or what punishment. You have to like turn, turn your mind the other way. It's about connecting to God and that relationship of that relationship aspect of it. It's about seeking holiness. You know, the food laws in Torah give a person a chance to seek holiness at least three times a day. You're thinking about it when you're eating. You're thinking about it when you're shopping for food, when you're at a restaurant. And so it gives a person a chance to seek holiness every day, in every place, with everyone. There's a practical application to this. Practically, what is, this? What is kosher? Now, how should we be doing this? And that depends on who you ask. We experienced this last week, a couple of weeks ago at Passover, right? What is kosher for Passover? Depends on if you follow an Ashkenazi tradition or a Sephardi tradition. There are variances between the Orthodox, is different than conservative. It seems like there are a whole lot of options out there as to how to live this out. As disciples of Yeshua, I think it is helpful, I think it's appropriate that we view our walk, we view our halakha through the lens of um, not just any old variety of Judaism, but Messianic Judaism. Why would we as disciples of Yeshua base halakha on anything other than uh, Yeshua-centered Judaism, if you think about it? Because Yeshua's teachings reveal the moral and ethical intention behind the commandments. You know, he exposed the heart of man and how it is sometimes a little deviant. Yeshua cuts past what it looks like on the outside, all these appearances, all our practices, and really gets to the inner meaning of the Torah deep in the heart. We have to begin there. The spirit moving within us, that should be our posture as we consider such things. 
Yeshua said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Amen. We should seek righteousness. You know, we desire to follow all his laws, not just the dietary ones. But he also said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Like, we try to keep high standards for ourselves, but Yeshua teaches that the heart of the matter is mercy and kindness and seeking him and his kingdom. If you don't, that's essentially step one. If you can't get that down, then no part of ritual or laws is really going to matter because it's the heart of the matter that needs to be, that kavanah needs to be right first. So everything we implement into our lives from Torah should be seen through that lens of Yeshua faith. This means that naturally the leadership here at Tree of Life are going to uh, base our walk on a Yeshua-centered Judaism that is growing and thriving in the world today. We see that in the UMJC, the MJAA. They largely represent that movement. So our halakha, our walk, and all things in that walk is going to find its tradition born from those sources. And so, essentially, if you go back to chapter 11, there's a list of animals. It's not too complicated to figure out what this is. Um, and we know that it's the intention of the heart to desire to eat right. And there's that intention and then the actions that go along with that with just trying your best to what you truly believe is right is in the ballpark of um, what we believe is right. You should try and we have mercy because all of us fall a little bit short. So we're getting into a lot more laws that are coming up in the coming weeks and the coming Parshas, and we just need to keep that lens of Yeshua on all these things as we love to engage in all the mitzvahs and in all the different traditions that we keep that lens on there of mercy and kindness and it begins in our hearts and we help each other along. There's no condemnation for those who might not be at the same level as we're at because um, practice is a wide spectrum and no two people are at the same spot. We're all kind of in groups. We're all kind of in there somewhere. And just so somebody's a little bit left of the spectrum, just or if someone's a little bit less observant, quote unquote, on the spectrum as you are, know that there's always somebody more observant on the spectrum than you are. So we just uh, are happy that where we're at, we're responding with the amount of revelation that Adonai's given us, and we just help each other along the way. Mercy and loving kindness. So let's close with a psalm of praise for his laws. I love, we're going to be getting into this essentially the next, as we get through Leviticus. Psalm 119 is the biggest psalm in the Bible, and it does nothing but praise his Torah. And there's a lot to get in there. It's hard to even pick one out. I love Psalm 19, verse 41. Psalm 119, verse 41. Yes, it's the Vav. The psalm is broken up into lots of different chunks, and they all have their own Hebrew letter. Psalm 119.41 is the Vav. It says, May your loving kindness come to me, Adonai, your salvation according to your word, so I may answer the one taunting me, for I trust in your word. Never snatch out of my mouth a word of truth, for I hope in your judgments. So I may keep your Torah forever and ever, and I walk about in freedom. 
For I have sought your precepts. I will speak of your testimonies before kings and never be ashamed. I delight in your mitzvot, which I love. I reach out my hands for your mitzvot, which I love, and I meditate on your decrees. May we be blessed in implementing Torah into our lives. May the Spirit guide us in that, encourage us, inspire us to live out his word, and may our intentions be pure and our actions merciful as Yeshua has commanded us to do. Shabbat Shalom.